What a great prayer that song is. Um, a hard one, though, to sing. Did you sense that in your soul? God, make me an offering. Um, it's in the pressing and in the crushing that you're making something new. If, if that doesn't stir in us a little bit of tension, we're probably not singing it the way that it's intended to be sung, or at least in the way that that actually happens in our life, because that's not fun, is it? No, it's not. And in some ways, I think there were a number of us who walked out of our first like, intro message in this four-week series, and, and really this four-week series is sort of like one long message, and you may be thinking to yourself, Ryan, they're all one long message, but this one is one long message, and you may have walked away thinking, well, yeah, I know hospitality is really good, Ryan, and that's a great idea, but... And we have like a whole list of buts, don't we? We have a whole list of reasons why that's really, really hard. And to that today, I want to say, you're right. It is. And I, I want to spend the next 35 minutes or so affirming, you're right. <laughs> but. But I can remember the day vividly. I was a sophomore in college at the wonderful Colorado State University, go Rammies, proud to be a CSU Ram, and was walking across our courtyard and I saw a man who had a really long beard, sort of unkept, had a smock on that it looked like was homemade, had pants that looked like they were homemade, and he was holding a cardboard sign that said, what do you think about Jesus? And at that point in time, I was a follower of Jesus, I was serving with Young Life, and I thought, wow, that's really cool that he's standing in the middle of our courtyard, or sitting in the middle of our courtyard, just striking up conversations with people. And so I went up and met him, and was with a friend of mine, his name was Jerry, and we got into a conversation about Jesus. And at the end of our conversation, I said to him, hey Jerry, if you ever need a place to take a shower, here's our phone number, give us a call. He was experiencing homelessness. And so what I found out is that homeless people take you up on offers that other people sometimes won't, right? <laughs> Two days later, my phone rang. It was on the wall at this point in time, right? I answered it. It was Jerry. He said, hey, does the offer still stand to come and take a shower? And I looked at my roommates and went, are you guys cool with this? And they said, yeah, I was living with three other guys. So Jerry came over and took a shower. And as he was leaving, we said, hey, Jerry, if you know any friends who need a place to take a shower, um, our house is open. Call us anytime. And he did. And so did his friends. And we said to him, hey, Jerry, um, if you ever need a place to throw your tent, you can throw it in our backyard. And so he did. Um, and it was really cold one evening. And so we poked our head out the back door and said, hey, Jerry, and to his friends, if it's ever too cold for you guys and you'd like to come and sleep inside, come on in. And they did. So for two and a half years of my college life, I lived with four to five homeless guys who slept on our couches, on shelves in our garage. And I can tell you this, it wasn't always easy. In fact, when my wife, now wife Kelly, would come to visit, we had to be like, guys, like, clean stuff up. Like, we've got to look a little bit presentable. I'm trying to be husband material here, right? Like, <laughs> it wasn't always easy. Eventually, long story short, we had to ask them 
to leave. But whether it's homeless people who live with you or an in-law or an outlaw or you have somebody over for dinner or you're sharing a piece of your heart with somebody in a deep conversation, neighboring or hospitality is never easy, is it? It demands something of us. It demands that we open maybe our home or our table or a part of our life to the other, which is why the scriptures deal with this subject so honestly, and I love it, because here's what Peter says. If you have your Bible, open to 1 Peter chapter 4, and then you can also flip to Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to be sort of going back and forth between both this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Here's what Peter, who's sort of pastoring a group of churches and um, right after the resurrection of Jesus, writes to this group of churches and says this. Above all, like, like, if you don't do anything else, do this. It's sort of this look up at me moment, right? Love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. So it's not about being part of a community that's perfect because, hey, this just in, we aren't, we never will be, and no church you go to will be. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. It's not about whether or not we're perfect. It's about whether or not we love because love is the thing that covers our brokenness and our imperfections. Offer, he says, what? Hospitality. In the Greek, it's that word we talked about last week. Philozenos, two Greek words put together. Love of whom? The stranger. Love of the stranger. Offer love to the stranger, to one another, without grumbling. Don't you just love it that this isn't some pie in the sky? Hospitality is going to be easy. It's going to be awesome. Just Google Martha Stewart and do that. You're going to be good. Here's what Peter says. I know it's hard. And I know that some of you are offering hospitality because in the first century you had to. It was required of you in an honor-shame-based culture. Hospitality, if you didn't offer it to somebody, you were looked down on the community. So there's people offering hospitality to others, but they're doing so, and under their breath are going, I can't believe they're going to stay this long. Are you kidding me? They brought just chips and salsa to dinner. Who are these people, right? Who do they? Their kids are climbing all over our new furniture, right? Right? Like, not that we do any of this, Okay. But he says, offer it without grumbling. So when we think of the word hospitality, we oftentimes think of food. We think of having people over into our home. And it's certainly that. But if you were to go back into the audience of Peter, they would have had something very different or expanded in their mind. Certainly hospitality is about offering food. It's that. But in the first century, here's what it meant. Um, We actually get English words from this word hospitable, the etymology of the word hotel, hostel, hospital, and hospice are all connected to this one word, hospitality. So think about it. In a world, in a a Greco-Roman world that was changing rapidly, the Romans brought a number of inventions. One of those was the road system. And so people, for the very first time, were traveling large and extended distances. And they were doing so without a hotel or an Airbnb on the other end to sleep at. And so followers of Jesus were known in the early Greco-Roman world for opening their homes to people to come and 
to stay in. They sort of picked up on this need and they met it with hospitality. Listen to the way that John Chrysostom, the great preacher in the fourth century, said it to his church. This is in a sermon. He says, make for yourselves a guest chamber in your own house. Set up a bed there and a table with a candlestick. Have room to which Christ may come and dwell. This building is set apart for him. Could you imagine that as a practice at the end of this message? Like set up a room in your home, have it ready just in case somebody, anybody, a stranger knocks on your door and needs a place to stay that night. That this was the ethos of the early church. In 362, the emperor then Julian of the Roman Empire, who was not a follower of Jesus, looks on to the other Hellenistic, the sort of the Greek leaders of the day, and he looks at the Christians offering hospitality, and he goes, you guys, we've got to be more like this. We, we've, we've got to do what they're doing. Here's what he says, and, and, I, and I quote in a letter he was writing to one of his leaders, why then... Do we not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead, their sobriety of their lifestyle has done to advance their cause? He says, each of these things, I think, ought to really be things practiced by us. So if you want to know how did the early church expand, well, they opened their homes. They didn't have some like robust, amazing plan for reaching the world that was on some like whiteboard. All they, they just had this one methodology, deeply care about the people around you and open your home to them. If somebody needs a place to stay, give them a place to stay. If somebody needs food, give them food. In 370, Basil, who became known as Basil the Great, the bishop of Caesarea established the very first hospital. Did you know that part of our offering as followers of Jesus, as offering hospitality, we developed the first hospital, 372, to care, 370, to care for the lepers in the community, people nobody else wanted to touch. Basil said, we're followers of Christ. We're, we're, we're going to open ourselves to that. The monasteries became sort of hospitals. They were sort of outposts on the edges where people were cared for physically and spiritually. They weren't for retreat. They were for impact. So when Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, he's certainly thinking about a meal, but he's thinking about more than that. He's thinking about a lifestyle. And you could see how that lifestyle might mess with your plan just a little bit, can't you? I tell you that to give you sort of a lesson in hospitality and what it meant, but also to open our minds up to start dreaming again. I want to be part of a community that dreams, God, how would you have us do this in this day, in this time, where, yeah, we are, don't turn your home into a hospital unless you're like a registered doctor or nurse or medical professional, please, okay? But what might it look like to offer radical hospitality? in the place that you live. Offer it without grumbling, Peter said, and we grumble. Here's why we grumble, because hospitality is hard. 
It's inconvenient, it's expensive, and it's invasive. And this is sort of our cultural moment. This is, this is the moment that we live in. Hospitality is inconvenient, isn't it? I mean, it takes time. It takes time to open your life, to open your home, to people around you. And we are maxed out on time, aren't we? No? You're not? If you're not, praise Jesus. But we have work, we have family, we have sports, we have hobbies, we have other commitments, and we tend to run through life at a frantic pace. Does anybody want to say amen? Amen. There's an overload of options of things to do with our time now, isn't there? You can fill it in a number of different ways, and we do. We do, and then we wonder, where did the time go? Not only that, not only that, but hospitality is inconvenient because we are just a little bit obsessed with entertainment, aren't we? And so just, just a moment of honesty, right? Like I told you last week, I don't stick the dismount on this every time. My wife, after the message, said, I think you were a little bit hard on us. And so that's her way of saying, I think we're better than you think we are, but fair enough, you know? Um, she's not here this service, so. <laughs> there have been times. You don't need to nod. You don't need to agree. You don't need to elbow anybody. When I have resisted offering hospitality because there was a game I wanted to watch or there was a movie I wanted to watch, or there was a show that I wanted to catch up on. Right? And so in a world where we can get it anytime we want it, we start to close ourselves off just a little bit, don't we? And, and it's, it's not cheap to have people over. If you offer somebody a meal, you, have, you open your home, you want it to be at least slightly presentable. But most of us in this room, if the statistics hold true, the average American carries $6,000 in credit card debt and the average American household has 10000 in debt. And so we go, well, that's something we can cut, Right? Not only that, but I think maybe the biggest, the biggest sort of obstacle that we face, the biggest grumbling that we go, mm, I don't know if I want to do that, is that hospitality is invasive. You just have to flip on HGTV, you know, the show that, about all the houses that look better than yours? Um, the, <laughs> the whole station about that, where they go in and they remodel a house, right? And what are the words that they use to describe the house? Oh, this house. This house is an oasis. This house is a, is a private retreat. This house, oh, look at the, look at the privacy fences. Look, you don't, this house is great. You don't have to talk to anybody around you. I mean, we might as well just build a moat around our house, right? With a drawbridge, and we're like, what's the magic password? Sorry, right? Whatever they did with moats, I don't know. Yeah, that's the, way, uh, that's the way that we often view it, isn't it? We long, we long, we crave community, but we base our lives around isolation. And that's just a method for protection. And okay, so hear me on this. If you're like, gosh, Paulson, I felt bad last week, thanks. 
Um, this is not intended to say we're wrong, we're doing, this is, this is intended to ask some questions. Are there some ways that the Spirit might invite us to open our hands a little bit, that Jesus might use us more for our joy and the glory of his name in the place that he has divinely planted us? This is not about guilt. This is about opening ourselves up to God. And it's about pointing out some things that we all wrestle with. In some way, there's something up here that we go, oh, yeah, no, 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 that's me. That's me. So how do we do it? What does it look like to be people that offer hospitality? Who in the world has time for this? Flip over to Leviticus chapter 19. As you're flipping there, I was putting a, a book into my bookshelf this week, and I have sort of books that I love right in back of my desk so I can grab them quickly, and that book, part of my bookshelf, is maxed out. So what did I do? I tried my best to open a little tiny hole to force another book in there, right? And I think that's what most of us do with hospitality. Like, our, our lives are full. Our lives are busy running from one place to the other, but Jesus says to be hospitable, so I'm going to force that book in there and I'll make it work. It's interesting that when the teacher of the law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, the man quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, love your what? Neighbor as yourself. But before he says that in verse 18, look at what the author of Leviticus says in verse 9 of Leviticus chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, because most people were farmers back in this day, most people lived on a plot of land that their family had owned for generations, and they ate the food that they produced. When you reap the harvest of your land, he says... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Skip down to verse 18. Love the Lord your God. I'm sorry, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? Well, he gives two commands. You leave the edges. You leave the edges of the field. And when you harvest it, resist the urge to go back and pick up all the little pieces of grain or whatever you're growing of grapes that you have dropped. Leave them. Why? So that you can be a good neighbor. So that you can love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor who's a foreigner. Love your neighbor who's poor. Love your neighbor who's a friend. So you get the picture. You have this sort of square plot of land, and they don't say exactly how much margin is supposed to be left. They only say, leave some. Maybe it's proportionate to how big of a field you have. The bigger the field, the bigger the edge. But look up at me for a second. Here's what the author of Leviticus knows. It's impossible to love your neighbor if you don't have any margin in your life. 
If you don't have any margin around the proverbial field of your life, you cannot be a neighbor. Turn to the person next to you and say, leave the edges. Leave the edges. Leave the edges. That's right, because intentional margin is the thing that creates capacity for vibrant hospitality. Intentional margin. And I chose that word intentionally because it doesn't happen by accident. Our default, our default is to fill up the pages of our life to the max, isn't it? Do you ever have an English teacher that was like ruthless about margin around the edge of the paper? They would like measure it, and if it was just a little bit over or a little bit less, they were cracking down on you. How much easier is it to read a piece of paper that has a little bit of margin around it? It's a lot easier, isn't it? You know, it's a lot easier to live a life that has a little bit of margin around it, too. But here's the problem. Here's my problem, okay? So I found myself reading Leviticus chapter 19 and going, well, yeah, but what if no foreigner comes, no poor person comes to take from the edges? If, if they haven't come, then that food is what? Wasted. And my commitment to productivity to maximizing my life, to making the most of my time, demands that I push it to the edges, right? And I sensed God say, look up at me, Paulson. (laughs) What if, what if, what if the best parts of your life happen in the margins? What if the most impact you have happens in the margins? What if the most joy that you find takes place in the margins? What if those moments where you go, oh man, God, it's good to be alive, happens in the white space around your life? Yeah. And, and, and I think, I think, if you were to step back, I think you would affirm that's true. That's true. And if you do not prioritize margin in your life, you will not have any. If you don't choose to create margin, you won't have any. Um, Someone once said, if you don't design your life, somebody else will. They'll tell you what to do with the edges of your field, or or you'll just start reaping out to the very corners and the edges Friends, and you may want to write this down. I think this message, if we could summarize it in one succinct phrase, it could be, God is inviting us to live by design, not by default. And the nation of Israel, for them to leave the edges of their field for strangers, for foreigners, for people that they didn't care for much, to say, come and take a little bit from me, was countercultural. And if you start creating margin in your time, in your finances, in the space that you have, and the openness to people around you, it will feel different. It will. Because our lives are full. So the question is, what is this, like, how how might we do this? What heart postures are necessary to say, God, we want to be people of margin, 
We want to do that. How many of you would say, like, yeah, I, I think I want to do that? What does it take, though? Because all of us would say we want to do it, and so many of us live this kind of a life, don't we? <laughs> Flip back over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because Peter's going to continue this idea of offer hospitality without grumbling, and we said we do that by creating intentional margin for people to come and to receive from us, but what needs to happen in our life to get there? Here's what he says. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful, what? Stewards of God's grace in its various forms. A steward is not an owner. A steward is somebody who a, a wealthy person entrusts with a, typically a plot of land back in their day. They're the manager. They get to use the master's stuff, but it's not theirs. And so what Peter says to his church, to this church that he's writing to, he says, if you're going to be somebody that offers hospitality without grumbling, choose to see yourself as an entrusted steward, not an entitled owner. So let's just, let's just get it out there. I just want you to repeat after me. My time is not only my time. My money is not only my money. My house is not only my house. If we are apprentices of Jesus, our time, our money, our space is something that we are stewards of, not owners. Not owners. And so as part of that, there's a few things that I just want to encourage you. Can we just as a community of faith just say we want to categorically reject the badge of busyness? That in some way, busy makes us important. You know, like you ask somebody how you're doing and they're like busy and you're like, wow, you must be a big deal. Can we just as a community say, we're going to choose not to use busy as a metric for how important we are or how productive we are? Because some of the most productive people in the world are not the busiest people. Do you know this? They're actually the, more, the most intentional people you know. Here, here let, me, let me say it this way. You are not a slave to your calendar. You are a steward of your time. You're a steward of your time. And I get it, you work nine to five, but that does leave some room in there to say, God, how do you want me to use this time? How do you want me to use this space? What do you want me to do with it? I love the way John Ortberg said it. He said, the most serious sign of hurry sickness is a diminished capacity to love. And here's why this is so important, you guys. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and that's the one thing hurried people don't have. So how do you create margin? One two-letter word. Any guesses? No. No. Can I encourage you to practice saying it this week? And resist the voice in the back of your head that says, well, that's unspiritual. Jesus maxed out his time. 
Jesus was this beautiful combination of certainly making a massive impact in three years of public ministry. We are here because of him. And yet, if Dallas Willard once was asked, what's the one word you'd use to describe Jesus? His answer, unhurried. He was never in a hurry. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. He was never in a hurry. The question we've got to wrestle with is, do we live at a pace that allows us to be available to those closest to us? Here's the way Willard said it later on. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. If you do that, it's going to be countercultural. But you'll start to create margin. You'll start to create space. Um, I think I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it was just so impactful for me. Aaron and I were in Africa last Advent season, and we were spending time at an African tea, which the men typically host uh, almost every evening or a few evenings a week. And they get together, and they talk about life, and they talk about sports, and they talk about politics, and they have this tea kettle that sits in the middle of the gathering. And it's a wood-fired sort of a wood fire that heats up the water and make it boil to make the tea. And we were sitting around, and one of the people, uh, one of the Americans with us said, hey, um, Timothée, if you put some oxygen on that flame, it'll get hotter and the tea will boil quicker. Like, let's give a microwave. We could speed this bad boy up a little bit. And here's what he does. It was beautiful. He looked at us and he said, this, and he pointed to all the people in the circle, this is the point of the tea. It's not about the tea. He said, you Americans, you Americans have watches, but we Africans have time. And, uh, and yeah, wow. I started to think to myself, I wonder if we'd have more tea if we had less TVs. I wonder if we'd have more time, if we had fewer ways to distract ourselves and to be busy. Like, what if this week, what if this week you started as a practice, you started to just slow your life down intentionally? Here's a few ways you could do this. You could decide you're only going to drive the speed limit this week. <laughs> Next, any other ideas, Ryan? Okay, sure. Um, what if, what if you decided to choose the slow lane at the grocery store? I've brought up a few of these before, but these are practices you can do to actually slow your life down, to create margin. You will start to see the people around you. What if you took one meal, one meal a day, and you ate it slower than you normally eat it, and really focused on like the chewing and the tasting have you ever gotten done with a meal and thought, I know that tasted good, but I don't remember what it tasted like? <laughs> Most of our meals, right? What if you did that? What if you decided, like Jesus, to spend just a little bit of time in solitude, in quiet? Because you do know this, right? You, you, it, your field, the field of your life is only good for hospitality if it's producing something if there's some food that comes from it, if it's healthy, if it's whole. And solitude is a place we gain freedom from the forces of the society that wants to shape us. 
See, almost everybody that writes about hospitality says that the demands of hospitality can only be met by persons sustained by a strong life of prayer and times of solitude. It's wholeness that creates the capacity for hospitality. Maybe you start getting to your appointments just a little bit early. Yeah, I know you'd have to sit in the waiting room. I get it. You know who else is in the waiting room? People. People that God might have an invitation for you in. What if we did the same with our money? What if we did the same with our space? Okay, just, and I just want to speak to this just a little bit, and then we're going to move on, okay? But will you look up at me for a second? We have, in our day, in our culture, in our time, we view our house as our castle, as a place to retreat. What if, as followers of Jesus, we started to rewire that thinking to say, my house, my space is the platform God's given me for kingdom impact? Not just a place that I get away. You need to do that. You need to rest. You need to recharge. We just talked about that. But what if we just made this fundamental shift? God, you've given me this space, whatever it is, an apartment, a condo, whatever it is, in order to make a difference for your kingdom. You may own your house, but God owns your all. So we're people that intentionally create margin by going, hey, we're stewards of this stuff. We're not owners. We are stewards of our time, of our space, and of our money. It's all God's. Here's what he says next, Peter does. So each of you should use, say it with me, whatever. Whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its what? Various forms. Quick time out, okay? So here's what Peter is saying. This hospitality I'm calling you to offer without grumbling doesn't look the same for everyone. It doesn't. Some people are wired to go, I want to have a ton of people over. I want to have a big party. I want it to be lavish. I want to be over the top, and I want to do it every week. Here's my email address if that's you, okay? No, I'm just kidding. I like that. Some of you, though, some of you go, man, I would love to just get together with a trusted friend and share life. I'd love to just have one, one person over, one couple over, one family over. I don't want it to be too opulent. I don't want it to be too over the top. I just want one person. Here, here's the deal. If you were an introvert and you were thinking to yourself, oh, great, freaking sermon series on hospitality. This is my worst nightmare. <laughs> Peter sees you. Peter hears you, and his, Jesus' invitation to you is it doesn't have to look like anything other than what it looks like for you. Do it the way you do it. Because we've got to understand that God has gifted you intentionally, all of us intentionally, and that he's called us uniquely. And some of you young moms, the goal is just survival. Some of the people that you're in school, the paper's looming, I get it. Some of you are retired and maybe the energy isn't what it used to be. Whatever season you are in, Jesus sees that and it's not some standard that you have to reach up to. He goes, all right, what do you have? What do you have that you could uniquely offer? And he goes, hey, for some people, it's, it's speaking. That, that's how you can offer hospitality with, with just a word. For some people, it's serving but whatever it is, it's God's grace that he's given you that you then get to extend to someone 
else. So don't miss the image of this field, because every field has boundaries, doesn't it? Every field has limits. You can't give away somebody else's. And here, catch, catch this, you're not called to give away all of yours. The calling of hospitality is not give until you die. The calling of hospitality is to say back to God, God, we're stewards of the things you've given us based on who we are. We want to extend those back to you to use for the sake of your kingdom so that others may know who you are and may bow in worship. There's this famous story of Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he got married to his wife, Kate, Katharina, their wedding night, someone knocked at the door on their wedding night. And he opened it up and invited them in and gave them a place to stay. Fellas, I'm not suggesting that, okay? If you're, if you're engaged, don't do that, right? Don't even tell people where you're staying, right? But so some people take this a little over the top and it kills them eventually, That's not what Jesus has for you. Who are you? What do you have in your hand? And then live into it. There's a story that's told in the three synoptic gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In Matthew chapter 5, we see Mark, or Mark chapter 5, we see Mark retell the story. There's this powerful man. He's, he's sort of one of the main guys at the synagogue, and he comes up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, my daughter is sick. And Jesus, being who he is, says, well, let's go. Let's go immediately. And you can almost imagine this guy, his name's Jairus, putting his arm around Jesus and saying, like, come on, Jesus, and, and they're walking through the crowd, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? And I can imagine if I'm Jairus, I'm going, we got places to go, we got people to see, we've got a daughter who's sick. Jesus, come on. Who touched me? Everybody's touching you. Who cares? My daughter's life is on the line, right? There's this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus looks right at her and asks again, who who touched me? She says, I did. The scriptures say that Jesus sees her, looks at her with compassion. Not only does he heal her, but he loves her and calls her daughter, a woman who hasn't been touched in years because of her condition, and he just starts to invite her in. I think it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live a life of margin because it means that we... Embrace interruptions as divine appointments, not as distracting inconveniences. We embrace interruptions as divine appointments, not as distracting inconveniences. Did I skip the point before that? No one was going to tell me. You guys were all just like, he skipped the other point. So, okay, um, we talked about it, but I didn't put it up there. I apologize. Understand that God has gifted you intentionally and called you uniquely. And then we embrace interruptions as divine appointments, not as distracting inconveniences. Okay, so you just look up at me just one more time today, okay? And we're going to land the plane here. 
the most important thing you do tomorrow may not be on your calendar. You might not be able to find it in your iPhone calendar. The most important thing God's inviting you to do may not be the thing that you set out to do. It was really cool. We, we threw this big party. A lot of you guys were a part of putting that on. We as a church just said we want to love our community and we want to love our community well. And it was really neat because after South Fest, we got this email back from one of our partners in Love, Inc. And Love, Inc. is a great organization. And here's the email that they wrote back to Molly, who's one of our staff members. Catherine said this. She said, thank you so much for such a great opportunity. It was a fantastic event and a beautiful evening. I was able to talk with so many folks from South and from the community. We got five to six folks that were interested in volunteering, which we really deeply appreciate. She says, I was also got reconnected with Rebecca Bell, who's the director over at her preschool, and we'll be following up with her about ways that we can support some of the preschool families that you serve. One woman I spoke to came from Parker. She saw the Facebook posting that morning. Well done to you all and to all South Fellowship staff and volunteers. I know what a big undertaking it is. We're so grateful to be a part of it and to be building up our partnership as we serve the community with Christ's love. And that was one of those things that we didn't expect to come out of South Fest, but we're just going, God, thank you for the way that these divine appointments come into places and spaces that we don't expect. One last story. Someone came up to me after the service last Sunday, and I'll invite Aaron, wherever he is, if he's hiding in the shadows, to come up. He's in the shadows. It's got to be a big shadow. He's 6'5", so yeah. Someone came up to me. Um, last week, we shared that Tim Clibby, one of uh, members of our church, strong contributor, tragically passed away on Labor Day of this year, was in a motorcycle accident. Someone came up to me after service last Sunday and said, I just want to tell you a story about Tim. They said, my brother was stranded along the side of the road. It, he, he was just there along C-470, and a car pulled up behind him and just stopped, and someone got out and said, hey, do you need a ride to the gas station? And this person took him to the gas station and waited there 45 minutes while they figured out all the towing and all the things that were going on with the car, and, and he just waited there, just talked to him, and they didn't know each other. Well, this person came up to me after last service and said, the person that stopped for my brother was Tim Clibby. Followed him to the gas station. It was a total inconvenience, wasn't expected, not in his calendar. But he said, my brother's always going to remember that some stranger, he said it was from South Fellowship Church, stopped. So what might it look like for us to do the same? To just hit pause long enough to say, God, we're stewards, we're not owners. It's not our time, it's not our money, it's not our house, it's not our energy, it's yours. You've only given me a certain amount of it, but how do you want me to use it? And we want to create space and we want to create margins so that we can so that when those inconveniences come, we might see them as divine appointments rather than throwing us off track, that God is calling us to be on track with him. So this week, what's it going to look like to live it out? 
I've decided I'm going to give us the same set of practices every Sunday during this series. You have a block map on the back of your bulletin. Anybody have one more of those little boxes filled in this week? One more than you did last week? Roger, yes! Other people? Cool, awesome, awesome, Connie. Praise the Lord. Maybe you download the Nextdoor app and just start getting plugged in. We have someone over for dinner. Aaron hosted a, a bagel breakfast with his neighborhood on Saturday. Allison, Allison hosted it. Aaron, Aaron was there, smart man. Maybe you prayer walk your neighborhood. What does it look like for you? I know it's inconvenient. As long as hospitality has been offered, people have grumbled about it. But you stop grumbling when you see the way it could impact the people around you. Here's a gift. Um, I'd love to give somebody um, coffee for their whole office someday. I think there's $50 on these Solid Grounds card. Anybody work in an office, you sort of drive past Solid Grounds and you'd like to bring your office or some sort of community that you're involved in coffee this week. Come on. I just, I need two. I need two of you. Nicole, done. Come on up. Come on up. Awesome. Will you tell us a story? Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. Would you stand with me as we close our time together? We're going to sing the chorus of this song that's a beautiful prayer, asking God to use us for the glory of his name. So Jesus, we do, we surrender our stuff, our time, our energy, our thoughts. It's yours. We're stewards. We are not owners, Jesus. Remind us of that this week. And Father, I pray that when interruptions come into our life, that we might see them as appointments, not interruptions. Jesus, that we might open our hearts and our lives to others. As hard as that may be, would you show us what it looks like for us in the season of life that we're in, and the time that we have, and the resources that you've given us? What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourself? Teach us. We're your disciples, apprentices. We want to follow after you. Amen.